Well, what's up? 6 p.m. service. So glad you're here. Yes. Awesome. Thank you for coming again to the 6 p.m. service. I will continue to encourage you to come to the best service of the day. 6 p.m. service uh, is going to help us empty up some seats on Sunday morning as we head into Easter. Whether you're here in the service or whether you're on video, uh, so thankful that you're with us today. If you're watching live on Facebook or perhaps on our Live Church online platform, uh, please use the share buttons. Let other folks know uh, what God's doing here at Element Church. We had somebody from Japan watching today. Somebody from Guam watching today. So literally all around the globe, they're watching us, which is incredible. So thanks so much for tuning in. And if you're new here, uh, my name is Jeff Manis, lead pastor here at Element. Just so glad, thrilled that you're with us uh, today as we're in week number two of a sermon series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it's taking us all the way up to Easter Sunday. And if you're from my generation or older, you will definitely recognize the Mr. Rogers set design we have here behind me. I do want to take a moment and just say thank you to our volunteer set design team who absolutely nailed the look. Did they not? Did an amazing job. So thank you to them. If you don't know uh, who Mr. Rogers is, open up the, your YouTube app on your iPhone, look him up, you'll see it looks about like that. So obviously, uh, Mr. Rogers is not what we're talking about in the series. It's just a visual reminder to help us think about the idea of being a good neighbor. I believe the Christian life can really be boiled down to what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. And we see this greatest commandment is found in one conversation that Jesus had with a lawyer. As I said last week, that's not the start to a really bad joke. It's actually a conversation that he had found in the Gospel of Luke. So Matthew, Mark, then Luke is the third uh, book of the New Testament portion in the Bible. Luke 10, 25 through 29, a conversation here between Jesus and a lawyer says this. One day, an expert in religious law, and the reason I call him a lawyer is some translations call him a lawyer, which means he was most likely someone who defended the law of God. So here's this lawyer stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And here's the thing, whether you believe in Jesus or not, and by the way, if you're here tonight and you don't believe in, you're not a follower of Jesus, we are thrilled. There's no other place we'd rather you be than right here. We love it that you are here, and we love you regardless of whether you believe what we believe or not. We love you, and we love it that you are here. But whether you believe in Jesus or not, the answer to this question affects all of us. Because I think hardwired inside every human being, hardwired in us, is a desire to be neighbors with, to do life with people who live out the great commandment whether they realize it or not. I think we'd be hard pressed to find anyone on the planet who wouldn't want to be neighbors with someone who loved their neighbor as themselves. In fact, 
just this last week, I was blown away by something I heard from the business world that was linked directly to the scripture. So I listened to a lot of podcasts. I was listening to, to a, a certain leadership podcast about creating a great hospitality or guest service, customer service culture in whatever organization that you serve in. And this, this podcast was interviewing a man whose name is Horst Schultz, not Horst but Horst Schultz, he's a German descendant, so that you know, clarifies the, the weird name. But he's the chairman uh, and the CEO of the Capella Hotel Group. In the 1980s, he created and ran the operations for the Ritz-Carlton Hotel chain and made them the gold standard among hospitality, among hotels all around the world. In fact, most of today's Hotel hospitality standards are based on principles, philosophies, and systems that he instituted in the 1980s. So at the end of this podcast, they spent about 30 minutes, in fact, it was a two-part podcast. At the end of this podcast, Horst kind of summarized all of hospitality in the business world into kind of one statement. I want to read it to you today. It's on the screens if you want to follow along. He said this. I don't want to pretend that I'm a pastor here or anything like that, but goodness, love your neighbor. For me, that's always an overwhelming thing. Asking Jesus, what's the greatest command? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's somebody I want to follow. Put that into the equation for heaven's sake. And then he said this, even those that don't believe have to understand what a powerful, beautiful thing to say Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that awesome? It's awesome. That's why I would say that if we truly lived out the Bible's commands of being a good neighbor, if we as Christians truly loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved our neighbors as ourselves, I think there would be segments of the unbelieving world who would look to those of us who believe, and they may not say it out loud, but on the inside they would say, won't you be my neighbor? Like, I want a neighbor that lives like that, who loves God and loves the neighbor as their self. Now, I hesitate even to use this next word, but I'm going to. It comes with lots and lots of baggage, but ultimately, this series is about evangelism. And I know when we hear the word evangelism, we typically think of our words. We think of talking. We think of telling other people about Jesus. But I believe words might be the most least important part of evangelism. That being a good neighbor does not start with my words. It starts with my attitude, right? That's what we looked at last week. So if you weren't here last week, if you want to get caught up, or all of our sermons really are online, you can go to our website, elementchurchwy.com. Uh, you can download, we just redid our entire app, so you can get our, our app, Element Church WI, off the app store. You can get our podcast as, as well. And we said last week that to act like Jesus, we first need to have the same attitude as Jesus. That when we have the right attitude, the right actions will flow out from that. And here's the thing. If we don't have the right attitude or the right actions, why would anyone want to listen to our words in the first place? That to listen to our words, we first need to have the right attitudes and actions. It reminds me of this quote. Maybe you've heard it before. It's kind of familiar in the Christian world. It's on the screens as well. Here's the quote. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Isn't that good? Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, 
use words. Now, that quote is attributed to a man who is called St. Francis of Assisi, which is not to be confused with St. Manus of Studley. Ha-ha! Yes! Been working on that one all week long. Couldn't wait to get that one out. So don't confuse it with that. Now, there is, there is uh, it's, it's corny, but it's funny. Come on. There is much debate as to whether St. Francis actually said that, but whether he did or not does not negate the truth in it, right? That the point behind that statement is we are always preaching sermons. We're always preaching. Our lives point to something or someone. All of us are evangelizing something with our life. We are evangelists for something with our life. 1 Peter 3 verse 1 puts it this way. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. Isn't that awesome? That the way we live can speak to people who don't even believe in God, that we preach with our lives. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to kind of give a a disclaimer that you need to understand we're not going to be perfect as Christians at this whole good name. Whoa. We're not going to be perfect. That was perfect timing, by the way. I don't know if they planned that or not. No, they did. That was the only service that happened to him. We're not going to be perfect at this whole good neighbor thing, right? And I can't guarantee you that every Christian you experience here at Element Church is going to be a great neighbor for you. But what I can tell you is this, kind of with, with, with pretty clear certainty, that for those of us who do believe in Jesus here at Element Church, for those of us who do believe, we are going to do our best to live out the great commandment. Can I get an amen from the believers in the room? We're going to do our best to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll do our best. We won't be perfect, but we'll do our best. So have you ever had one of those times in life where you experience something or someone answers a question and it's not like anything you, you expected. It completely throws you for a loop. Maybe it even changes the way that you view that thing or the way you view that person forever. Ever had a time like that in your life? Well, here's, here's a time for me. Several years ago now, uh, the entire side of my dad's family, so my, my dad's mom and dad, and then his sisters and their spouses, and then all of their kids and my dad's kids, all of us, we went on a seven-day cruise to the Caribbean together. So it was like 19 or 20 of us all together on this trip. We didn't have our kids with us at the time, which was amazing. It's amazing. I mean, I miss them so much. Wow, I miss miss, miss my kids. So my wife and I are on this cruise with with our family, all adults, and on the cruise ship, there's a number of different pools and hot tubs that are meant for you to enjoy. And early on in the cruise, I don't remember when it was, but it was early on in the cruise, my cousin Jamie comes to me. She's one year younger than me. And she kind of told the whole family, do not get in any of the hot tubs on this ship. I'm thinking, what in the world happened to Jamie. Like, what's going on? Why wouldn't we get in the ship? We brought, or in the, in the hot tub, we brought our swimsuits with us. I'm all for relaxing in the hot tub. I'm not a big fan of being in a hot tub with folks I don't know, but if it's my friends and family, I'm like, come on, let's get in. Let's have a good time. So I wanted to know why, right? So I asked her, why not? Like, why wouldn't we use the hot tubs? And that's when Jamie proceeded to tell us a story that's forever etched in my brain. So on this day, Jamie and some of our other uh, adult cousins, we're all like within five or six years of each other. So we're all really close. And Jamie and some 
of my other cousins, they went and, and got in the hot tub, you know, they're going to relax, spend some time together. And uh, she had longer hair at the time, so she gets in the hot tub. And as you'll do sometimes, you know, you'll start to put the water over your head and put it on your face. So she's doing this, you know, kind of getting refreshed with the water when she does this and realizes there's chunks in my hair. Yeah, if you have a weak stomach, I'm sorry. And so she brings her hand down to realize that somebody had vomited in the hot tub. <laughs> and no one cleaned it up. Yeah. So she was expecting this nice, relaxing, refreshing soak in the hot tub. What she got has forever changed how she interacts with hot tubs, right? And listen, that's exactly what's about to happen for this lawyer that asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus is about to completely flip his paradigm on neighboring. When the lawyer asked the question, the Bible records he was wanting to justify his actions. So apparently he was already loving towards people who he thought were his neighbors. He was already loving towards people he associated with, people that were close to him. He assumed that closeness equaled my neighbor. Closeness is a real word, by the way. I looked it up to make sure I didn't make it up. It's a real word. It's a noun. And so he believed closeness made him a neighbor. In fact, most likely he was expecting Jesus to answer, every Jew is your neighbor and only Jews. Because that is what most Jewish people, especially Jewish religious leaders, believed it meant to have a neighbor is Jewish people and Jews alone. We did not go outside of that to love people like we love ourselves. But Jesus was about to give him an entirely new perspective on neighboring. He's about to have some chunks in his hair, if you know what I mean. So here's the big idea for today. If you want to write it down, you can. It's this. Conduct, more than closeness, determines whether I'm a neighbor. That my conduct, the way I act, more than closeness, who is beside me, determines whether I'm a neighbor. So if, if conduct's the key marker of a neighbor, I think we have to ask this big question. What conduct is the mark of a neighbor? What's the conduct that makes me a neighbor, a good neighbor? And to find the answer to that, we're going to look at Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbor? So we're going to look at Luke 10, verses 30 through 37. We're just conclude, uh, continuing the story here. And here's what we're going to do today. Okay, so it's going to be a little bit different than what I would normally do. My OCD alarms are, have been going off all day long because... This sermon has no points, okay? <laughs> so if the earth spins off its axis today, it's not my fault, it's God's fault, because he directed this, okay? And uh, we're just going to kind of go through this story. I'm going to read some portions of it. I'm going to make some comments. And then by the time we're done, my prayer is that for all of us, me included, I've been convicted with this message, for all of us, that God would just speak to us individually, whether we need to be convicted or comforted or confirmed in something, that God would do what only he can do. I can't do that to you. Only God can. And so if you start feeling God's, you know, feeling something kind of stir in you, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. So Luke 10, starting in verse 30, Jesus replied with a story. So he's answering the question, who's my neighbor? A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. So that's the first place we're going to stop. Jesus was referencing, uh, he was referring to an actual 20-mile journey that was not the only way from Jerusalem to Jericho, but it was the most direct way. It was also the most dangerous way. In fact, this way he referred to was so dangerous and violent that Jewish people named it the way of blood. 
So it was a very dangerous, very violent way to travel. On top of that, this was a common route for priests to take after they had fulfilled their week-long service in the temple in Jerusalem. So they would serve for one week at a time in Jerusalem in the temple. And then Jericho is, was a priestly city, so there was over 12,000 priests who lived in Jericho. So they would go serve for a week in Jerusalem, then they would walk back to Jericho, oftentimes taking this road the way of blood. So this guy was attacked by bandits, and it says this, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. I want to stop there. This was interesting to me, that the phrase Jesus used, by chance, is not used anywhere else in Scripture. The only place in the entire Bible you'll see that phrase, by chance used, is right here in this parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I can't prove this. This is me theologically conjecturing here, okay? But I wonder if perhaps Jesus was using this phrase to make an opposite point that nothing really happens by chance. That nothing really happens by chance. In fact, the fuller commentary on this verse said this, chance is the nickname that many men have given to God's unseen planning. So perhaps the server that you encountered or will encounter at the restaurant today, perhaps the cashier that, that checks you out at the store, not checks you out like you're hot, but checks you out like takes your money, okay? Per, perhaps, perhaps the teller who helps you out at the bank, perhaps your neighbor standing by the mailboxes when you go out to get yours, and countless other interactions we have with people every day, perhaps they don't happen by chance, but by providence. And maybe we don't see it as providence because we're not praying for God to open our eyes to see the people he puts in our path every day. So what if, church, for one week, what if for one week every day, just for a week, okay, all of us could do this, for one week we just made a part of our morning routine on your drive to work or getting ready in the morning, whatever it is, and we just prayed this prayer, God, Put people in my path that you want me to love as myself. And not like love in a weird way. This is not a prayer for single people looking for a spouse. Okay, I'm not talking about that. This is not, Lord, put somebody in my path that I can preach the gospel to. No, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God today. Put someone in my path that I can just be a good neighbor to. Why? Because conduct more than closeness determines whether I'm a neighbor. It's my conduct. So I want to love people as I love myself. So here's this Jew. He's on his way from Jerusalem to, to Jericho. He's attacked and stripped and beaten and left for dead. And this priest comes along and look what he does. But when this priest saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, why would he do that? Like, why would he do that? Jesus doesn't give, he doesn't give us the why. Okay, he doesn't tell us why he did it. So all we can do is speculate. So again, I'm theologically conjecturing here, okay? But I read what a lot of great theologians thought about this passage. I did, I did more study on this, this story than I've ever done in my whole life. And I've heard this story, I bet, two, three, four hundred times in my life as someone who I grew up in the church, so, man, I have no idea what's going on with that. 
But many scholars believe that what Jesus was alluding to here was that this priest failed to act not out of fear of also being attacked, but out of fear of becoming unclean or the appearance of becoming unclean. Because for a priest to touch a dead, uh, touch a dead body would make you defiled and unclean. And if you were unclean as a priest, that meant you would not be allowed to go back into the temple for a certain amount of time until you fulfilled this purity ritual. And then only after being announced pure again could you go back in the temple. And for many priests, for many Jewish religious leaders of the day, the appearance of holiness, the appearance of purity, especially to those around them, was their highest priority that they wanted everyone else to know how holy they were. So maybe this priest wasn't even going to risk the very appearance of becoming unclean. Becoming unclean. Or maybe, maybe he was thinking this. I've already fulfilled my service to God. I've been serving in his temple for a whole week I led people in the worship of God. I taught the word of God. Look, I've done my duty. Let someone else take care of this. I'm just checking off my list. Following God. The pulpit commentary put it this way. His entire conduct was inhuman but not unnatural. Alas, how faithfully is it copied by multitudes of men and women professing Christianity now? Wow. Like we do the same thing, right? I went to church on Sunday. I read my Bible. I prayed to God. Not only did I go to church on Sunday, but I went again on Monday night to night of worship. Like, I'm an amazing worshiper now. Like I'm checking off my list. Somebody else can take care of that. When perhaps we're walking by people every day who have been beaten and left for dead. And you might say, well, Pastor Jeff, if I saw someone beaten and left for dead, I'd do something about it. And you're right, physically. Like 99.9% .9 of us in the room, if we saw somebody beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, we'd do something about it physically. But how do you know whether the server at your restaurant or the bank teller at your bank or the grocery store clerk or the teacher in your school or student in your classroom or coworker or employee or employer on the inside has not been beaten and left for dead? Because I'm telling you, church, there is a robber out there. His name is the devil. Jesus said the devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And there are many people that maybe not physically, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, relationally have been beaten and left for dead. And all they need is someone to notice them, walk over to them, and love them like they love themselves. This is why. We've got to start seeing every interaction in our day as providence and not chance. That perhaps God placed that person in that moment in my life for me to make a difference to them in their life. Did you know there's an entire website online devoted to telling stories about how churchgoers are the worst people to serve at restaurants on Sundays? You know what it is? It's real. It's called sundaysarethewurst.com. That Christians, churchgoers, have the worst reputation in restaurants on Sundays. And this website was actually started by a pastor, which I love, 
with two goals in mind. The first goal is to help us Christians see that our attitudes and actions matter in everything we do and everywhere we go. Second of all, he started the website in the hopes that other non-believing servers would see that not every Christian is impatient, greedy, and selfish, okay? So there's one waitress that turned in the story about her Sunday experience that convinced her not to give Christianity a try. It's not on the screens. I'm just going to read it to you. She turned this story in, sundaysaretheworst.com. For me, what made the experience so bad wasn't just the rude behavior from these adult women I was serving or the cheapness of stiffing me on a tip or the sneakiness of leaving fake money on the table that turned out to be a pamphlet about their church and about Jesus. What really got me was I was in a place that very day where I was considering going to church. A friend of mine had just committed suicide these ladies' church had been recommended to me. I never went. These women were the only thing standing between me and the very church they thought was so important for me to attend. Whew. That sucks. That sucks. I'm not saying that this is who we are because you are some of the most generous people on the planet, okay? But, like, come on. If there's anybody in the world who should be known for their kindness and generosity, it's those of us who believe. Why? Because we have experienced the most lavish act of generosity this world will ever know, God giving us his son. And we declare that his son lives in us, and then we treat people that way. It infuriates me. It infuriates me. That every day, every day, God puts people in our path who are beaten and left for dead. They've been attacked by our enemy who's trying to steal and kill and destroy their life. And here we come along, and I'm guilty of this. I'm as guilty as anyone. I get so caught up in getting everything done with my day. Just bam, 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 bam. I fail to even stop and recognize there is an eternal soul that I'm giving this money to for my groceries. Have I even noticed how her face looks? Have you even asked her how she's doing? Have I stopped to even care about this person? Are we just fulfilling our duty in the temple? Or do we see each person as a divine appointment that perhaps I can make a difference in their life? What would an extravagant act of generosity have done for that waitress? I don't know. What would some simple kindness have done? What would have meant to her if someone would just taken an interest in her? Not an interest in getting a notch on their belt for winning somebody to Jesus, but simply trying to find out who are you. We care about you first. I know they could have left a $5,000 tip and maybe that waitress would not have got, gotten saved. But at the very least, she would have seen the love of Jesus through his followers. And that's what we're called to do because conduct more than closeness determines whether I'm a neighbor. So then in verse 32 says this. So the priest walks by. Then a temple assistant, a Levite, walked over, looked at him lying there. So he's doing something worse. 
He gets all the way there and sees how bad the dude is. But he also passed by on the other side of the road. So one commentator I read, again, theologically conjecturing here, said that perhaps the priest had been aware that an assistant was coming behind him. And so he thought the assistant will do something about it. And perhaps the assistant saw the priest who was his spiritual leader. And he said, well, if my spiritual leader does not see fit to do something about it, why should I? Passed him by. So here's what I hear in my modern day mind. Someone else will help. Someone else will serve. Someone else has more money. Someone else has more time, okay? Or let me get, let me get Christianese on us. If, you, if you're not like, familiar with Jesus in the church, like we're great as Christians at coming up with terms that I just call Christianese. We just make up these phrases that get us off the hook of some things, okay? Um, and here's one of the Christianese statements that we make to get us off the hook of doing what we know we should do in the first place. We say things like this when it comes to kind of passing somebody by. Well, that's not in my gift mix. It's not in my gift mix. Somebody else is more gifted in that. Or maybe, maybe people are looking at me and they're saying he's a spiritual leader. And he didn't believe he should do something about that, so why should I? And listen, if you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're a coworker, you're a leader. If you have friends, you're a leader. If you go to school with other people, you are a leader. So guess that makes all of us what? Leaders. I got four kids watching me. Four of them. When they look at my life, what am I telling them? What am I modeling is important? Am I showing them what it means to be a good neighbor? That's, that's like dagger to the heart stuff for me. So at this point, the lawyer and those listening had to be thinking, like, where's Jesus going with this? The priest passed by, the assistant passed by, who's left? This is where the vomit's about to get in the hair. Okay? The refreshing hot tub is about to turn repulsive. Because this is what Jesus said, Luke 10, 33. Then a despised Samaritan came along. They had, there had to be dead silence among the crowd, a lot like it is right now. Like it's heavy today. Maybe someone gasped, I don't know. But this was shocking to them. Because a Samaritan would have been the farthest possible thought of who the neighbor was. Samaritans were excommunicated by the Jews. They were synonymous with heretics, or worse yet, they were synonymous with the devil. They hated each other. They thought the worst of each other. They avoided each other, and they had to be thinking, surely the Samaritan will not help the Jew. Luke 10, 33. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him, meaning he couldn't not do something, that someone or something was moving him from the inside out, going over to him. Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins that was worth two days' wages or enough to last for several days of support, telling the innkeeper, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And in telling this story, Jesus was breaking every paradigm 
this lawyer had and any Jew had about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. He was literally, Jesus was shattering centuries-old religious views and political views and social views and racial views. He was not blurring the lines between who is my neighbor. He was breaking them down to build them back up again. In verse 36, he asked this question. Now, which of these three, priest, assistant, Samaritan, would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And remember, remember, this is so huge. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And he's expecting Jesus to say, your fellow Jew. But Jesus didn't even answer the question. He didn't answer, who is my neighbor? His answer was, here is how you can be a neighbor. You go be the neighbor. You go do what the Samaritan did. So he asked, which one is a neighbor? The response in verse 37, last verse. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and what? Do the same. Go and do the same. That conduct, more than closeness, determines whether I'm a neighbor. So here's, here's kind of a phrase that really for the last 18 months or so, a little bit longer than that, has just been a challenge to my heart, and I've shared it with our church multiple times, that if our worship in here does not lead to work out there, then what happened in here was not worship. It's a game. Just an event that we put on. Like, I, I'm all for, I, I am an external, I'm an extroverted worshiper, Okay. We put our hands in the air because we are declaring, God, I surrender to you, the almighty God. I praise you for who you are. We lift our hands in praise. But if I lift my hands in praise and don't put them to work out there, then this was not praise. It was just impressing everyone around me. Look how great of a worshiper I am. Holiness is what the priest prized. And holiness should be prized. That should be what we're striving for. But holiness without helping people is hypocritical. It's empty, it's vain, it's useless. So maybe we shouldn't be asking who's my neighbor, but just start living our lives like the Samaritan who Jesus says was the neighbor. He was the neighbor. So what did he do? Well, he moved toward the mess, right? Was it messy what he took on? Absolutely it was. Is it messy to love people as we love ourselves? Is it messy to love some of our neighbors? Yeah, right? Some of you are thinking of some of your neighbors right now and thinking, do I have to love them? <laughs> the Samaritan crossed religious, social, political, racial lines. And church, that is a message the American church needs to hear today, that if we are going to make the kind of impact that Jesus wants us to make, we've got to start crossing those lines to serve people in need. He risked his own safety. He sacrificed his own resources. He gave up his own time. He was willing to continue serving, saying, here's some money. If I come back and that didn't cover it, I'll pay you more. That's it's amazing. So this man knew that serving someone one time did not get him off the hook of being a servant over time. 
that serving's not a moment. Serving's a movement. You know what that sounds like? Our vision. That our vision at Element Church is to be a movement of people having such an impact that if we were gone, our communities would miss us. That we are all about helping people experience life in Christ, being a movement of people for Christ, and making an impact in the name of Christ. But where does that start? It starts with being a good neighbor. (laughs) Simply loving people as we love ourselves. Viewing every interaction as perhaps a divine appointment. Not chance, but providence. Say, okay, God, how can I, how can I show your love to this person in this moment? And maybe sometimes there isn't going to be a way, but maybe sometimes there is. Maybe you're going to be at dinner with the waitress whose friend just committed suicide, and she's wondering, should I even give church a chance? And you might be that tipping point. (laughs) Literally, I didn't mean to have a pun there, but just gave one. You might be the tipping point in her life that gets her to church. So I just want you to close your eyes, bow your heads. I want you to, all of us, you don't have to believe in God to talk to him. You'll, he'll still hear you. I just want you to ask this question. God, where am I in this story? Where am I? Am I the priest? Just checking off the boxes of religious duty. Am I the assistant? And man, I see how messy this is. I walk up to the mess and I'm like this, man, this is not for me. I, I'm out. Or am I the Samaritan? That's who I want to be. Lord, make me a Samaritan. Make me that person who crosses the lines, who sacrifices, who gives, who serves, loves. Make me like them. And Lord, help me see. Help me see every interaction in every day, not as chance, but providence. God, who in my life, who in my life right now are you asking me to be a good neighbor to? Help me be that to them. I love you guys. Let me pray for you. And then please remain seated. Pastor Andy has got just two quick things to close. God, you're so good. And Lord, I'm so challenged by this message. Lord, I don't want to be the priest. I don't want to be the assistant. I want to be the Samaritan who saw with your eyes and served with your hands. So Lord, help me take this now into my life to model it for my kids, for those who look to me for leadership. Lord, help me be that example that says this is the way we should go. And we charge into our city with your light and your love. Lord, thanks for being the perfect neighbor to us. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen.